Go ahead and have a seat and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And as we do, as you do, we'll play the bumper video. I didn't even know we had a bumper video, but Madeline made it and we're going to show it. So here we go. That's it? No audio? Oh man, what a, what a anticlimactic thing I made that to be. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, a couple of things I want to let you know about as you turn with me again to Mark chapter 12, which is where we'll be today. Um, uh, and, and we're going to pray for some things as well. But today is, uh, I learned, uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And uh, we've seen a lot of great progress for the cause of life recently. Um, and those things, uh, they, they matter. Um, I believe there's going to be some kind of march. I don't know anything about it, so take that with a grain of salt from the Nazarene Church at 1.30 today. Uh, but we are grateful to God for life, and all life is, um, is created in His, well, all human life is created in His image and worthy of the honor and dignity and respect that that deserves. Well, as we continue talking about 500 in 5 today, uh, I want to encourage you all to, as you leave today, as you leave this room, step out these doors and look at the wall over to the left by the coffee corner, and you're going to see kind of a new display over there. And this is kind of our 505 board. There's, there's some print materials over there that you can take, but one of the questions as the elders have worked through this and asked the question, who is Trinity? What is God making us into? What does he want us to do in the world? How does he want us to make a difference? And as we've been unrolling this mission to love God and to make him known as we take steps together in this, uh, in this thing we call the Christian walk, and as we seek to reach 500 uh, families, whatever that shape of a family might take, uh, the, the big question is, how do we measure that? And, and maybe even a little bit of why do we measure that? And, and I'll, I'll answer the how first. And this is one way that we've begun to measure that. And so you'll see on this board, there are three uh, glass, uh, well, we'll call them jars, even though they're not really jars. You'll see them out there. And then there's a container of stones. And really, as, as, and there's still prayer guides out at the... Um, at the guest services counter that help you to identify somebody that you want to reach with the gospel and then take steps to, to get to know them. And really, uh, we, we see there's a great little book. Um, if you haven't read it, there's also a video series on Right Now Media as well. If you're not a reader, there's a video series on Right Now Media. If you don't know what Right Now Media is yet, come talk to us. We'll make sure you have access. It's an incredible resource. Uh, on the gospel comes with a house key. And, and Rosaria Butterfield shares her story in there. It's an incredible story of coming to faith and seeing what God's done in her life. But she made a statement in that book that really captivated me um, a while back. And she said, hospitality is where strangers become friends and friends become family of God. And, and what an incredible statement that is. And so we've got these three kind of jars. And we understand that it takes time. Now remember, we're, as we're talking about 505, we're talking about uh, engaging in a family that might be hurting or broken or uh, cl in close proximity at, at work or maybe your neighbors or wherever it is, and just genuinely getting to know them and to befriend them and to love them and hopefully someday to, to share the gospel with them. I was going to share this later, but I'll, I'll share it now. I saw this video some years ago by Penn Gillette. If you don't know who Penn Gillette is, he is the 
Penn of Penn and Teller, the famed musicians that are on TV all the time. I was actually in the airport in LA one time and I heard this voice behind me and I was like, I recognize that voice. And I turn around and there's Penn Jillette. Now, I mean, unless Doug Guttramson's around, I'm not usually uh, inclined to have to look up to people, at least not physically, uh, but I had to look up at Penn Jillette. He is a giant of a man. Anyways, that's beside the point. Uh, there was uh, one show that they did one day, and he, he films this video, and there's this video of him just, it's on his phone, and he's got a Bible in his hand. Now, Penn is a, a militant atheist, militant atheist, and uh, this guy was just hanging out, and, and Penn was like, the show was over, people were coming to talk to us, they were getting autographs, and, uh, and I, you could tell this guy was just, just waiting uh, to, to talk to me. And so finally, after everybody else, he comes up and he hands me this Bible and he says, I, I, just, I just want you to know I'm praying for you, and hands him the Bible. They had a little conversation and Penn thanked him. Uh, and then he went to his hotel room, I think it was maybe, and he filmed this video. And he said, you know, I know that this guy believes that there's a God and I don't. I know this guy believes that you have to believe in Jesus to be forgiven of your sins, and I don't, and I'm paraphrasing here. And I know he believes that there's a hell that people go to, and I don't. He says, but you know what, I, I, even though I disagree with this guy on all these things, I have great respect for the fact that he wanted to share that with me. And then Penn Jillette says this. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to know or believe that they'll spend an eternity in hell and not tell them how not to. Yeah, I mean, he nails it. He doesn't agree with any of it, but he uses those words. How much do you have to hate somebody? And I think there's an incredible moment of clarity from Penn here where he understands what hate is. Hate is not animosity. It's not a feeling particularly as we consider love biblically being action and hate being action. You know, Forrest Gump's mom got it right. Stupid is as stupid does. Love is as love does. And hate is as hate does. So we, wanna, we cannot speak of loving the world that we live in and not speak of sharing the gospel with the lost. Because the reality is people out there are going to hell. And that's why this is so urgent. I feel a little bit like Paul. You know, um, I think the question could possibly arise, like, what is it that you want out of us, Logan? Do you want to, you know, what is it you want? You want a bigger church? You want more influence? You want fame? You want this or that? None of those things. I'm reminded of uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul was uh, talking in Philippians 4 about the Philippians having been like the first and maybe only church at this particular point in time that was supporting Paul financially. And he said, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that, at the, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. They were the only church that was supporting him as a missionary. He said, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once again, once and again. And then he makes this incredible statement, not that I seek the gift, 
but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He said, I'm not asking for churches to give money to the ministry for my gain, but for the fruit that increases to your credit. I'm not asking us, the elders really, because this wasn't my idea, are not, are not asking us to consider how to reach 505 for our personal gain. Quite frankly, I look forward to the day where maybe we can plant churches instead of considering how to get bigger. Like if people all around here, if there's a mass flood of people in our neighborhood who just start believing and Trinity grows, that's great. But we've got people who travel from like Tushy and, and Loudoun and... Waitsburg, what if those places, what if we were able to plant Bible-preaching churches? What if so many people were getting saved in those places that they needed a church right there in that community? And the incredible goal isn't whether or not Trinity gets bigger, and really the goal isn't necessarily that anyone gets saved. We desire that, but we can't control that. That's not, with, that's not something that God has put in our power. But we can share the gospel. We can have joy. We can experience the power of the Spirit working through us when we get to tell somebody about who Jesus is and what he has done. And then we'll certainly at points in time get to be uh, in the incredibly privileged spot of being present when God saves a sinner and gives them spiritual life. Oh, I seek the, the, the fruit that increases to your credit. By the way, this is the passage in which Paul says that he is content in all circumstances. I'm content to have plenty. I'm content to have nothing because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So we're seeking fruit, not not necessarily for the good of this church, but we're seeking fruit for, uh, for your good, for the good of the lost out there who are going to hell, for the glory and worship of God in the world. I digress. Let's get back to the 505 board. What do you do with that? Well, let me tell you. I'm glad you asked. When you get to know a family, uh, maybe you, you've started engaging somebody uh, who, who you want to, to earn the right to share the gospel with, you take one stone and you drop it in the known jar. Uh, this is somebody I've met. This is somebody I know. Maybe they're not yet a close and, and dear friend. But uh, eventually, hopefully, as you, as you open your home and your life and conversations uh, to those people and you get to know them more and more, whether that be at work uh, or, or at, at home or wherever it may be, as they move from being known, and you'll see that that first Uh, upper left-hand jar is labeled known, to loved, you'll want to add a stone into the loved jar. Don't move a stone. We want to see how many people we're connecting with, how many people we're, uh, we're, we're actually genuinely befriending who we didn't know. And so if you meet a family today and you're like, hey, come over for dinner, and you start to get to know them and you invite them over to dinner again, and you're like, hey, this is somebody that I now know, you drop a stone in the known jar. And as they become loved, as they become a, f- a, a friend, which happens inevitably as you get to know them better and you start doing some things in life together, you put a stone in the loved jar. And when you've had the opportunity to share the gospel with them, I want to be very clear here, not when they believe We would love to see that. We would love to see people who are hell-bound now become heaven-bound. But 
we can't measure faithfulness in terms of their response. We just have to measure faithfulness in terms of our obedience to Christ. And when you get that opportunity to say, hey, let me tell you just what drives my life. Let me tell you who Jesus is because he's everything to me. Then you put a stone in the loved jar. And hopefully, over the next five years, we'll see 500 families move, whether that be an individual or anybody, or any, whatever it means to be a family out there that, that needs the gospel, that needs help, that needs Jesus, uh, we'll see people go from known to loved to shared. That We've shared the gospel with them. We've been talking about this for about six months now, but because we're kind of taking this month to really say, hey, this is the, the aim we have as a church, and by the way, it's just a tool. It really is just a tool. It's nothing more than that to keep something, at the, to keep something that God commands of us, really, at the front of our minds. And, uh, and so it's just a tool to help us do what God has already told us in his word we, we are to do. Um, but rather than starting the clock on this five years from six months ago, we're going to start it this month. And, and next year, at the end of this year, we'll see how many stones have made it into the, uh, the loved or the shared category. And then hopefully by the end of five years, we've, we've reached 500 uh, individuals and or families uh, with the gospel. We're still working on some things to just try and be a blessing to families to help them do things better. Financial Peace University is one of those things. Um, uh, we're going to do some stuff for marriage and parenting and things like that. Uh, be great opportunities for you to invite people to go, to go with you. When we have a parenting seminar and you're like, well, my kids have moved out, that's excellent. I'm envious of you. Just kidding, Bradley. Um, when, when your kid, if your kids are all grown out, up and moved out, maybe you don't need to go to a parenting seminar where the gospel will be plainly clear, but I bet you know somebody who you could take with you to the seminar, and so, uh, or whatever it may be. So we want to we embrace the power of with. It's really easy to invite people to. Oh, you should go to church. Oh, you should go to this parenting thing. Oh, you should go to this event. But that, that just has so much less force than will you come with me. To, to those kind of things. And so one of the, it's one of the ways we can work to, to get to know people. Um, why are we pushing this so heavy? Well, uh, you know, I've been here two and a half years now, if you can believe that or not, but, uh, but the last five years or so has been hard on Trinity between pastoral changes, which aren't easy, and job searches, which aren't easy, and new pastors, which usually isn't easy, and COVID, which certainly wasn't easy, um, there's been a lot of reason to, uh, to focus primarily on what goes inside, on inside the church. We just can't stay there because what we do when we leave as the church is as important as what we do when we gather as the church. And then secondly, it's just that, that there's, um, there's people who are going to hell. And, uh, and we want to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel and to believe. Okay, I will get off that soapbox. Forgive me. Thank you. Let's take a look now at our text today, which is Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And I'm going to read through verse 34, and then I'll pray. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. 
And seeing that he answered them well, that's Jesus, who is, is, uh, uh, is arguing with some people. We'll get, we'll get in, not arguing, they're really arguing with him. We'll get into that. But, uh, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege the privilege of gathering as a church, the privilege of uh, having your word, of knowing your word, uh, of of sharing the gospel with others. But but mostly, Lord, we have the privilege of being called your children, of being welcomed into your family, of knowing you as father and friend and Lord and sovereign and so many things. It is a great privilege to have our sins forgiven and to be welcomed into your kingdom, which is not far off which is here and is present. Lord, we um, have things going on in the body that we want to pray about today. Lord, we want to continue to pray for uh, Marilee Stimmel as she suffered this concussion. And um, Lord, we thank you that um, while it seems to maybe be a pretty good one, that uh, she's recovering well so far. Lord, we pray that her, her recovery would continue uh, quickly and smoothly and that uh, this would not be a long struggle with the effects of... Um, this concussion. Lord, we pray for uh, Athena Willard and, um, and her whole family as, as they're present with her mom who, uh, who is at the end of her life. Lord, we pray that there would be comfort and peace in this situation, that there would be joy in you even amidst uh, the difficulty of the situation, Lord. Lord, we pray, pray, we continue to pray this morning for the Christian Aid Center. We continue to thank you for the graduates and for their lives and for uh, the way you're putting people's lives back together and uh, and the ministry that they're doing in places, even at the Christian Aid Center. Um, Lord, we pray uh, for them as they've uh, expressed these, uh, these needs to us, Lord. Uh, would you provide them with uh, the minivan that they need? Would you provide them with uh, more towels as they need those and, and the men's boots in, in many sizes that they need, Lord? Would you uh, cause your people and your churches in this area to raise up and meet those needs, Lord? May they faithfully uh, let those needs be known. Uh, and then would your people meet those needs so that they can do the ministry that they are about. Lord, as we look to your word today, would you stir our affections for you? Would you cause us to love you and love others more and more today as a result of your word? And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Simply put, the highest Christian duty is love. Not love as defined by the world, uh, not love as defined by modern sensibilities, but love as designed by uh, by God's word or as defined by God's word. And it, it is first a love for God that then spills out into a love for others. In fact, I think the whole sum of the Christian life really can be summed up in love. Uh, one pastor said, true spiritual and eternal life 
begins with loving God imperfectly in this life and culminates in loving him perfectly in heaven. Certainly none of us love God perfectly in this life, though we will enjoy that privilege for eternity. But I think the important thing to understand here is that true spiritual and eternal life begins not with knowing God, but with loving God. And I think we'll see that fleshed out today as we continue to look at this passage. This really is in many ways the sum of what we're talking about in terms of discipleship. And as we've been talking about the vision, we've seen that we're all taking steps, we're all in progress, God is making us all into the people he wants us to be, and that is a slow process, maybe sometimes even slower than we want the process to be. Uh, but, But we're all taking steps, and we're taking those steps together as a church, but we're taking those steps to love God. That is our our aim. The the aim of of preaching God's word is so that we might love him, so that we might know who he is, and so that as we come to know who he is more and more and more, we might love him more and more and more for who he is and what he has done. I mark specifically as I pray through the Psalms um, on most days, I don't, I don't get it done all days, but, but as I, I take a psalm each day and pray through it, I mark uh, what, what, what does this psalm say about who God is and what does this psalm say about who God has done? Because if we know who he is and we know what he has done, it fuels our love for him. And really, that is the ultimate aim. It's why we sing, because we want to use the gift of music that God has given us to stir our affections about who he is. Um, uh, we, um, it's why we plug people into growth groups and adult Bible fellowships, because we want people in the word. We want people singing his praise. We want people knowing who God is. There is no such thing. Mark this, this is important. There is no such thing as spiritual growth apart from the Word of God. There is no such thing as spiritual growth apart from the Word of God. We sang today that God turns bones into armies. And what what does God do when he prophesies, when he shows this vision to, to Ezekiel and he says, see this valley of dry bones? Can they come to life? Only you know, Lord, Ezekiel says, and then God commands him to speak the words of God. And as, as, as Ezekiel uh, gives this message uh, from God to these bones, flesh comes upon them, but they're still not alive. And, and, and God asks again, can they, can they come to life? Can they have breath? And he commands, God commands Ezekiel once again to speak these words from God. And as, I, as Ezekiel preaches the word of God, these bones come to life. And that is just one illustration uh, from Genesis through Revelation where God forms and governs and calls and transforms his people by means of his word. And so we're going to do all of these things. We're going to preach the word with Uh, with passion. We're going to sing with great excitement. We're going to gather in relationships uh, all to the end that we might love God, not merely just know about God, but that we might love him. And this brings us back to our text, which we're going to look at in four parts today. 
As, this, uh, event, as these events unfold, we're going to see the trap, the question, the answer, and the response. Let's start with the trap. In order to understand the trap, we're going to have to understand the context of this passage. This is Passion Week. This is the time between the triumphal entry, which likely happened on Monday, and the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday, and his resurrection on Sunday. Uh, the, the events we're looking at here are Wednesday, and, and Jesus has made some enemies to be sure. He's already, as he's been preaching throughout Israel, been upsetting to the religious leaders of the day, so much so that they want to kill him. And he's been avoiding Jerusalem because they've sought to capture him and kill him and put him to death. And as, as he tells us, it was not yet his time. But he comes in in this triumphal entry on Monday, what is likely Monday, uh, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And as he comes into uh, to, to Jerusalem on that day, the crowd comes out and welcomes him as their Messiah, completely misunderstanding who the Messiah was to be. But they lay down palm branches and coats, and, and there's this very royal and regal and and and. Uh, conquering king type reception of Jesus. And if you're in charge, if you're the, the part of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and you think you're in charge, this is a threat to you. And so they're already upset. The very next day, he would go into the temple, fashion a whip, and drive the money changers out of the temple. If the triumphal entry had upset the Pharisees, the, the uh, driving out the money changers would have upset the Sadducees, and now everybody is upset at Jesus. But they couldn't do anything about it, because as we're told in Matthew 21, 46, though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And so they want to seize him, they want to arrest him, they want to put him to death. They also have a problem there because Rome doesn't allow them to put anybody to death as they're under Roman rule. Only the Romans can do that. But the people perceive him to be a prophet, and so they are, uh, they are concerned about arresting Jesus because of public opinion and wanting to sway public opinion about Jesus uh, and, about, and Rome, by the way. They set these series of traps that are designed to get Jesus to say something that would either upset the people or, they, or upset Rome. And so the first trick is to ask Jesus, hey, do we pay taxes to Caesar or do we pay the temple tax? I think this trap is designed to get the Romans upset with Jesus. Because if he says the temple tax, then, then well, now he's offended Caesar and Caesar's livelihood and income and tax. If he, says, uh, if he says Caesar, now he's upset the Jews. And of course, this is where he calls for a coin. He says whose image is on it, Caesar's. And he says, well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And, and the, the question does not go any further. He answers them well. In the second question, they try and trick him again. Well, in the, in, the, in the law, it's commanded that if a man dies, his brother is to marry his widow and raise up children who can then care for their mother in, in, the, husband, or in the dead brother's name and, and honor. 
And so if a man dies and, and the woman marries a brother and that brother dies and she marries another brother, and they kind of go on and on through this cycle now. She's been uh, uh, married to several brothers. They say, well, in heaven, who's, whose bride will she be? And he says, well, you're not thinking about this rightly because in heaven we'll be like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. And so they don't successfully trap him at this question either. But there seems to be a difference as we come to this text today between the people who asked those questions and the scribe who asks, which is really uh, what we think of often as a Pharisee or a lawyer. This would have not been somebody who just merely copied the word of God, but who was an expert in the law of God. And so we see in verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, talking about this temple tax and about the, this woman uh, and who she would, whose wife she would be and husband uh, with one another. And here's where this scribe gets a little different maybe than the people who have asked questions up to this point. Because we see that this scribe, hearing the debate, sees that he, that is Jesus, answered them well. This scribe sees that that Jesus answered well, but he's been tasked nonetheless with setting this trap. And so there is the context. We come now, second point in your outline, to the question. And it might seem like an innocent question, but it's not, and I'll explain to you why. And so this scribe asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? It's a trick question because rabbinical tradition had said that the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses, that just in those books, not considering the prophets or anything else, but in the law, in particularly that rule-bound section of Scripture as they saw it, that there were 613 laws. 248 positives, 248 things you had to do, and 365 prohibitions. 365 things that you could not do. This would not have been one for each day of the year for them because they went by a lunar calendar. So they had less days in the year than we do. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there were 365 prohibitions. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of those can you actually keep in mind? Anybody here golf? There's a few golfers here. If you're a golfer or really any other sport, you know that you can only really work on one thing at a time. You know, if you were to go get golf lessons today and that golf instructor were like, okay, here's the 20 things I want you to do in your golf swing. You can't keep all that in mind, let alone 613. So what do you do when you have 613 laws, most of which you can't even remember, certainly that you can't keep in the front of your mind and do all the time? What does the good legalist do? Well, they do what every good legalist does. They reduce it down to the most important. 
The so-called heavy laws, this is how they divided them. There were the weightier laws, the ones that were really, really, really important, and then there were the lighter laws. Jesus acknowledges this in Matthew 23, 23, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I think Jesus is not acknowledging that there are weightier and less weighty laws because he says, yep, you should still do those and do the others. I think he's using their own language against them. Because what we all do, and we've already talked about legalism in this series, but, but we focus on the things we can do well, and we criticize others based upon their conformity to the laws that we do well, and then we ignore the ones that we don't do so well, usually in the name of grace. But focusing, on, uh, uh, but focusing on what we do as important and what we struggle with as less important just doesn't work out. And so the, the, this scribe is now coming to Jesus and saying, okay, we're going to boil it down even not to just which ones are the most and, uh, weighty and which ones are less weighty, but we want to boil it down to one this has is, this is certainly got to be a trick that's going to upset somebody because not everybody can agree on what the most important uh, law is. That's the trap that, here, that is here being set, the question. 613 laws, Jesus. All of them matter. You're in trouble if you can't answer this question right. Which one is the most important? And Jesus' answer is profound. In verses 29 through 31, Jesus answered, said, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then Jesus, apart from this question, on his own, adds a second. He says, The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus answered first from Deuteronomy 6.4 out of what we call the Shema. The Shema is, Shema is Hebrew for hear. And so Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, starts out with the word Shema. And every good Jew would have known the Shema. It would have been repeated at least twice a day. And so this command is, is repeated twice a day to know that God is one and that we are to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. The context, however, of Deuteronomy 6.4, of the Shema, is worth noting. Because Israel had come out of Egypt, and they, because of their sin, were disqualified from entering into the promised land. And then Moses, because of his sin, was disqualified from entering into the promised land. And so now Israel has to wander in the desert for 40 years, waiting for all of that generation to die so that their children could go into the promised land. Now, most of that generation is dead. Moses is over 100 years old. He's about to die. Joshua is about to take over, and they're about to go into the promised land. And as they are, Moses is standing before not the original generation that came out of the nation of Israel or out of the nation of Egypt, but but this second generation that was going to enter the promised land under Joshua's leadership. 
And Deuteronomy chapter 6 starts out this way. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey." Here is how Moses starts this out before this nation that he's about to send into the promised land without him. He says, the most important thing is to fear the Lord and obey Him. And then he doesn't start with the Ten Commandments. He doesn't start with how to sacrifice an animal. He doesn't start with how to present a grain offering. He starts with the command to love the Lord. Because obedience to God cannot be obedience apart from love of God. The problem with the Pharisees was not that they were obeying some of the laws and breaking others, though that is hypocrisy and that does get called out, but that their attempts to obey were not done in love for God, but apart from it. And so we see that the start of of a life of faith The start of of walking with Christ is not, the the beginning is not to obey some self-imposed or even God-imposed rule. The start is to love the Lord, to delight in who He is. Jesus uses the verb, as we see here, back in Mark 12, agapao. It's the the verb form of the word you're probably familiar with, agape. Agape. This is not attractional love, and by that I don't mean anything romantic. There are some words for that. I mean, you meet a buddy at work or at play or whatever you you do to to rest, and, and immediately you like this person and they become a friend. That's the kind of attractional love we're we're talking about here. So uh, don't try and romanticize that. This this isn't attractional love like phileo. It's not like, hey, if if you tend to think well of God, if you, if you like his word, if, you, you know, if you're just generally inclined to feel good about who God is, then, then that's how you love God. No, he uses this, this word that is a, um, it's a willing, chosen, active love. Agape is really the fearful response to who God is. It's Deuteronomy 6, 2, that you may fear the Lord. And the result of fearing the Lord is to love Him. It's hard, really, to communicate the idea of fearing the Lord because it doesn't really mean that we're in terror of Him, nor does it merely mean that we respect Him. I never worried about whether my kids feared me when it came time for consequences. But I certainly wanted them to love me. I wanted them to feel safe in my presence, even if I was the disciplinarian of them at times. There's kind of all of these things built into that. 
But agape love, this willingness to, uh, to, to be obedient to God and to love him, comes out of this, this overwhelming and awe-filled fear as we stand before unbridled and unmatched power and authority and glory. We stand before him in the beauty of his character and the might of his strength and and we're in awe and in fear and we should hopefully respond with love and delight. Jesus describes this for us with four descriptions that come straight out of Deuteronomy and uh, it is that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And there's been many attempts to, that are made at what each of these entails and how this thing covers that and this thing covers that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here in just a second, very, very briefly. But I think maybe the minutia sometimes misses the point. The point isn't what is your heart and mind and strength. The point is that you're to love him with everything. That's the overwhelming message of, of Mark 12 and of, uh, of Deuteronomy 6, that it, that it is with our whole being that we are to love God. And so while I don't want to make too much of these, I do want us to understand how a first century audience would have thought of them. The heart, unlike how we think of it, would have been the center of thought for the Hebrew thinker. This would have not been the center of their emotions as we tend to speak of the heart. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Uh, Attempts to say that there's a difference between knowing God's word in your head and knowing God's word in your heart isn't really what these passages are about. That's true, we're going to talk about that here in just a second, but, but when, when Scripture speaks of, of hiding God's Word in our heart, it simply speaks of knowing it, of understanding it. Um, soul would have been seen as the center of one's emotions. The soul would have been considered the center of one's emotions, not the heart. In Matthew 26, 38, we're told that he said to them, my soul is, and this is Jesus to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me as he asks them to pray with him in the garden. It is his soul that is experiencing sorrow. The mind would have been a reference to one's will or intentions. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, how we kind of get those exactly backwards from the way most of them would have thought. We think of the heart as the center of one's will and intentions, and the mind as the center of one's thoughts, and and they have that exactly reversed. So is the sentiment God wants us to Uh, To not just know his word in our head, but to to hide it in our heart true? Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, But a Hebrew thinker would have just understood these a little differently. It's not a wrong thing to say that. And then finally, there is what we see here in the Greek, strength. This is one's whole life. It is all of our actions. It is everything that we do. The really interesting thing is in Deuteronomy 6, the word is ma'od, which is not a noun. It's an adjective. It means very or exceedingly. In Genesis 1, God creates, and for five days he creates, and he says it is tov. It is good. 
Uh, so he creates plants and he creates animals and he creates light and all of these things. And all of it is tov. All of it is good. But then he creates a man and he says it's not good for man to be alone. It's not tov. And so he creates a woman. And after there is a man and a woman together, he says it is tov ma'od. It is good exceedingly. It is very good. That's what we see in Genesis, that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your exceedingly. What in the world does that mean? In short, as one commentator says, it is a comprehensive all-consuming love and singular adoration. God's wholehearted love for believers must not be reciprocated with half-hearted devotion. God's wholehearted love must not be reciprocated with half-hearted devotion. And so we love him with everything. Of course, none of us loves God perfectly, But interestingly enough, the next day, Jesus is about to go to the cross to make up for that. He'd spent the previous 33 years loving God perfectly. He'd spent the previous 33 years obeying the law perfectly. He spent all of it getting it exactly right so that when he would be arrested, tried illegally, accused falsely, and crucified, he would be paying our debt. He took our punishment for us so that we could be forgiven. This, by the way, this is why we need the gospel every day. This is why you should preach the gospel to yourself every day. If you think that the gospel being clear in our ministries or clear in your daily life, if you think the gospel is only for evangelism, you've got it all wrong. Because this is the thing that fuels our love for him. Whether we've been walking with him for one year or for 100 years, there is nothing, nothing besides the gospel that will fuel our love for God. There are plenty of people who know who God is. Satan is one of them, and he still hates God. But when we recite to ourselves every day that despite the fact that I'm a sinner, despite the fact that I'm an utter failure as pertains to God's law, he loved me and gave himself up for me. He died in my place. He requires no repayment. He gives freely what cannot be earned. And then, not only after forgiving us, And having spent all of his anger on Christ at the cross. Think about that for a minute. Either Christ satisfied God's wrath or he didn't. And if he did, God has none left for you who believe. None. This does not mean that God does not approve or disapprove at times. But it means that the wrath our sins today deserve has already been spent. And so he never deals with us in anger. When you are 
tired of dealing with your children's disobedience over and over and over and over again, and you're utterly frustrated with them, God never feels that way towards you. He just delights in you on the merit and basis of Christ. And he delights to lavish every good blessing on you in the heavenly places. Even his discipline is for our good, as Rob read, that we might experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what we need to be preaching to ourselves day in and day out Because it is a response of ours to love God for his love for us in Christ. It is the gospel that fuels our affections. But then then Jesus adds a second command. And that is to love people. And this command is taken from Leviticus 19.8. He says the second is like it, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. This is taken, obviously, as I've said, from Leviticus 19.18, but we can see this in 1 John 4.20. There can be no separation of a love for God and a love for people. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Let that sink in for a minute. You and I cannot say that we love God, but not people, or even a person. This isn't brothers, it's brother, because we're created in the image of God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. People are created in the image of God, and you cannot claim to hate a person and love God. These two commandments encompass the whole law. In Matthew twenty-two forty, we're told that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments get divided the same way. Uh, commandments relating to how we relate to God and, and how we relate to people. We can't love people, rest- returning to my story about Penn Jillette, We can't love people apart from the gospel. I don't know how to love people apart from this. Because if I give you everything in the world and not this, there's no love in that. If I look at you and I say, I'll give you every earthly blessing, but I won't share the gospel with you, which is effectively go to hell, can't claim love. Love is as love does. The response from the scribe is pretty profound. We see this in verse 32. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he, now this is the scribe, that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The scribe affirms Jesus is correct. And because of this, because of this incredibly different attitude from this scribe than the rest of the people, 
who tried to trick him, we see a very, very different result, that he is not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is far from the blasphemous teacher that they were trying to accuse him of being. He answers them all correctly, yet they still found a way to kill him. By paying people to give false testimony, by trying him illegally, but this trap right here, it fails, and the scribe affirms that he is correct, which is why he is not far from the kingdom of God. In closing, it's our ultimate duty to love God. Not to know the Bible, though that's good, because you can't know God apart from the Bible. It's not to know and love and serve the church, though that's really good and even required too. But the first thing is to love God. The Bible is the primary place where God is revealed, and there can be no love for God apart from his word. But if you, if you have no hunger to read God's word, I'm going to rephrase that. Not if, when. Because my life goes through dry seasons and, and rich seasons. My spiritual life ebbs and flows like everyone else. But when you don't desire to read God's word, do a checkup on your affections. When you don't hunger for prayer, do an affection check. It's, it's really easy to do. When it comes time to read your Bible and pray and you don't feel like it, just ask yourself the question, what would I rather be doing? And you'll find where your affections lie very, very easily. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And why do I choose these two things? Because the Bible is where we learn about God. I read a biography on, um, on Charles Spurgeon. But I don't know him. I only know about him. I need a conversation to know somebody. The Bible is where we learn about God. Prayer is where we meet Him. Prayer is where we spend time with Him. We all need to check our affections regularly because they are prone to wander. Christian life doesn't build into love. It starts there. It is a love that grows and this is often illustrated in Scripture, and I have several things I could share with you. Spend some time in Genesis 22, seeing about God's test of Abraham to sacrifice his own son. It might have been an affection test. In Matthew 13, 44 and 46, we're told that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his Joy goes and sells all he has to buy that field. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. But I think maybe the ultimate picture for us in understanding this comes out of Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22, where the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? He knew something true about who Jesus was, and he absolutely knew what Jesus had to offer. He knew he was a good teacher, and he knew he had eternal life to offer. Jesus answered him, and he said, keep the law. The rich young ruler says, which ones? And he says, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness. Interestingly, Jesus only lists the half of the Ten Commandments that deal with people, and not the half that, that, uh, that deals with God. 
because he knew that if he proposed that half to this man, he, he couldn't claim to be a law keeper. But, but the rich young ruler says, uh, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus hits him right in the affections. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He already knew who Jesus was. He already knew what Jesus had to offer. What Jesus asks of him is to love him more than what he owns. He doesn't ask for mere intellectual assent. He doesn't even, you know, and and the word believe in Greek is much more robust than it is for us. He doesn't say just believe in me. He asks him to love him. Jesus, God has made plenty of people rich. The problem is not that he's rich. The problem is that Jesus knew that he wanted something from Jesus, but had no affection for Jesus. His affection was for something else. And so Jesus asks him to take up his cross and follow him, to use different language. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus lets him go. He turns his back on him, and he begins speaking to the disciples. And he instructs the disciples. He says, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the, heaven, enter the kingdom of heaven. And they ask, who then can be saved? Jesus doesn't change the terms. He doesn't lower the bar. He, says, hold, he doesn't say, hold on a second. I'm so desperate for people in my kingdom that let's make an arrangement for you to have eternal life without loving me. No, he asks him to love him, and, and he simply does not. And Jesus lets him walk away sad. True spiritual and eternal life begins with loving God imperfectly in this life and culminates in loving him in the next. What do you love? What do you love? Heavenly Father, would you stir our affection for you? Would you give us a a, a deep and abiding love for who you are? Lord, sin has affected us so deeply that sometimes our sensibilities don't like who you are. We must all admit that. Father, we ask that you would conform us, that you would transform us, that we would be willing to subject our sensibilities to your word and to who you are. Because you are good. You have loved us. You have given yourself up for us. You delight in us. You shower every good gift in the heavenlies on us. And we can trust that you are working all things out for the good of those who love you, even when we don't understand our circumstances or your commandments or your ways. Lord, even in those moments, give us a love for you that supersedes it all, that results in loving our neighbors, that results in sharing the gospel, that results in in meeting with you in your word and in prayer. And give us wisdom as we check our affections to know what things we're prone to love more than you.
and root those things out for our good and for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.